0: Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying." Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea who were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Dear Father, your word tells us quite clearly that the work of miraculous transformation that you do in your children, those whom you call to your Son, does not stop when you rescue us out of death and darkness and make us your children. You declare over and over that your purpose in saving us is to make our hearts fully yours and our lives powerfully useful to advance your kingdom. Help us this morning to see how utterly dependent we are upon you alone for every facet of that marvelous transformation and teach us to joyfully submit to your work every day of our lives in us to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last week we considered Paul's summary declaration in Galatians 1.11 that the gospel he preached is not according to man. He means that in every conceivable way. Nothing about the gospel comes from men and nothing about it matches up with man's way of thinking or acting. Men could not and would never come up with the gospel that we find in the Bible. We already considered two of three major points Paul then makes in the rest of chapter 1 as he proceeds to explain what he means when he says the gospel is not according to man. First, The message itself does not come from men. This is not man's good news to man. This is God's good news to man. And his second point is that gospel understanding does not come from men. It is God alone who turns the lights on in the heart of a man or woman or child to make the gospel of Jesus Christ both understandable and beautiful to a sinner who would otherwise remain blind and deaf to it forever. Paul bears witness to both those realities through his own personal experience. He did not receive his Gospel from men. And he wasn't taught his Gospel by men. He got both the message and the compelling understanding of the message directly from the resurrected Jesus. This morning, we're going to focus on the third of Paul's points in defense of this Gospel that he brought to the Galatians that he declares to be not of man. And that third point is that Gospel transformation does not come from men. He drives home this last critical point by relating the miraculous story of his own transformation, his own personal testimony of the radical change that Jesus Christ single-handedly accomplished in this man named Saul, whom we know as Paul. The true story of Paul's own miraculous spiritual transformation is one of the most powerful and compelling testimonies of transformation that you'll find in the Bible or anywhere else. Paul testifies to it here in Galatians 1, verses 13-24, to and he's doing so in order to further drive home the point that the Gospel that he brought to the Galatians is not of man. The actual event of Paul's conversion comes into focus briefly in verses 15 and 16. It's actually only a verse and a half. And what he says about that miraculous conversion is just enough to make the point that it was all of God and none of Paul or of any other man. He says, verse 15, but when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. In other words, with people. Now we might have expected Paul to say that God revealed His Son to him. But he says instead, God was pleased to reveal His Son in me. And then Paul immediately goes to God's purpose for doing so. That I might might preach him among the Gentiles. Jesus had certainly revealed himself to Paul in the most undeniable of ways. But Paul is focusing here on God's end game. And it's a good lesson for us. It strikes me that in Bible-believing Christian circles... Our emphasis when we talk about and when we sing about the good news has become more and more about the benefit of Christ to us and less and less about the usefulness of us to Christ by His doing. But God's version of His good news is always about both. In Titus 2, verse 14, Paul says that Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, for God's own possession, zealous for good deeds. The end game is all over that verse. God reveals his son to us and he redeems us so that he may reveal his son in us. Paul's entire argument at this point hinges on the fact that God revealed Christ in Paul, that Paul's life was transformed by the very presence of Jesus Christ in him to the extent that everything about Paul changed and everybody around him could see that it had changed. That change is the one strand of evidence of an entirely God-originated gospel to which Paul devotes the most attention in this passage. Paul's reasoning, his logic, his will, his agenda for his own life had all given way to Christ in him. The effective cause of all that Paul had accomplished in planting churches throughout the region of Galatia by that time and in teaching and nurturing those churches, the effective cause was not Paul. The effective cause was Christ in Paul. Paul's going to talk more about that cause and effect in chapter 2, especially chapter 2, verse 20. We'll get there. So when did God set Paul apart for this amazing assignment? When did God determine that on one given day, He would transform this hater of Christ into a lover of Christ and then set about to use Him powerfully to bring the gospel of the Gentiles to Gentile communities throughout the Roman Empire? Paul's answer is, God set him apart before he was ever born. He says God set him apart from his mother's womb. I believe the reason that Paul devotes relatively few words to his actual conversion event here is because he's only mentioning it to make a bigger point that the transformation that had occurred in him was not by his choice or by his doing. Every bit of what had been so radically changed in Paul was God's doing, not Paul's. (laughs) When it came to how Paul got saved, there really wasn't all that much to tell from Paul's side. If we're looking for a story... Of Paul's long intellectual or philosophical struggle to figure out if Jesus Christ was the real deal, it's not here. It's not anywhere. Because it didn't happen. If you want to get a more comprehensive account of Paul's dramatic conversion experience, read Acts chapter 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. But what you'll find in those chapters is not about Paul's quest for the truth about Jesus. It's about how the resurrected Christ called Paul out of darkness into his marvelous light in a single day. When Paul least expected it and when he had absolutely no inclination to want it. Paul didn't want to get saved. In biblical times and in biblical lands, you know how they measured the most decisive military victories? They were the victories that were accomplished in one day. Read the account of David and Goliath. Read the overthrow of the beast in Revelation 18. Look at the cross. It wasn't the spiritual journey that brought Paul to Christ. It was an avalanche. (laughs) And the name of the avalanche was Jesus. Now I know that some of you may not see it quite this way, and that's okay. But I have to call it the way I see it in Scripture. And from where I'm standing, this looks very, very clear. Paul's conversion story is a textbook account of God's sovereign election. Of God choosing us, not us choosing God. The only way that you can construe Paul's testimony about how he came to faith in Christ to mean that Paul chose Christ is if you actually contradict what Paul says. Because he says he didn't. So what does Paul, in fact, take time to explain about his own transformation in these verses if it's not a process by which he came to faith in Jesus? Well, two things. What he was like before God called him by his grace and what he was like after God called him by his grace. What was Paul like before Jesus plucked him out of the fire? Well, in Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, and get this, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul wasn't just zealous for observing his people's ancestral traditions that exalted law-keeping as the one and only path to godliness and to God. He was zealous for destroying the church of God that he rightly considered to be a threat to those traditions. And for Paul, destroying the church meant getting rid of Christians. And the best way to get rid of Christians permanently is to kill them. We've all met people who are openly antagonistic to the gospel, especially if we're bothering ourselves to actually talk to unbelievers about the gospel. But how many people have you met who are actively pursuing the death of Christians? Paul, who was originally known as Saul, was one of those people. He's introduced in Acts chapter 7. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were in panic mode because a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the Christian faith. And to make matters worse, a young Jewish believer named Stephen, one of the first deacons, was proclaiming the gospel and he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So some of the synagogue officials dragged Stephen before the Sanhedrin. That name should sound familiar at which point Stephen delivered an uncompromising rebuke in the form of a review of Israel's long and sordid history of responding to God's faithfulness toward them with unfaithfulness toward God. At the end of that sermon, Stephen accused the Jews who were standing before him of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit just as their fathers the way Luke introduces Saul for the first time in Acts, verse Acts chapter seven, is something—it's uh, like something out of a Dean Kuntz novel. If you ever read one of those, there's a very menacing statement in verse 59. It says that as the crowd of Jews was getting prepped to stone Stephen to death, they laid their robes at the feet of another young man named Saul. Three verses later, after Stephen gave up his spirit to God and breathed his last breath. Acts 8, verse 1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul was apparently uh, too proper to get his own hands dirty. But it looks to me like he was a ringleader on that day. In Acts 26, in Paul's defense before King Agrippa near the end of his life, Paul says this about what he was like up to the very day when Jesus appeared to him and changed everything. Acts 26 starting at verse 9, he says, "...so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul consistently voted for the execution of the Christians that had been arrested. He says, And as I as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Aside from the fact that Paul employed supposedly respectable legal channels, he was every bit as big a threat to the Christians in the Roman Empire as ISIS is to the Christians in Syria this morning. In Acts 9, verse 1, Luke writes that even on the day of Saul's conversion, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He had just gotten authorization from the high priest in Jerusalem to go to a city called Damascus, north of Jerusalem, and to smoke out some more Christians and then bring them in chains back to Jerusalem to be tried before the same Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus to death. Paul was apparently a voting member of that council because he said he always cast his vote for execution. He wanted them dead. But while he was walking on that road from Jerusalem to Damascus to accomplish that hateful task, Jesus blindsided him. Literally. There was no debate. Jesus didn't reason with Paul or argue with Paul. (laughs) Jesus blinded Paul's physical eyes with a light brighter than the sun in order to finally make him see God gave Paul a heart transplant on that day. The one that God speaks about in reference to his people Israel in Ezekiel 36, 26. He melted Paul's heart of stone away and he gave him a heart of flesh inclined forever toward the living God. This was the irresistible grace of God overthrowing an enemy with no terms of negotiation and no recourse except unconditional Surrender. This was amazing grace. In an instant, Paul was transformed from an enemy of Christ to a child of God and an ambassador for Christ. What was Paul like after his miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus? Well, this young man who had been extremely zealous about killing Christians to protect his ancestral traditions, (laughs) laid down his own life for his Savior and Master. For three decades, Paul put his life on the line time and time and time again. He suffered tremendous deprivation, humiliation, suffering, poverty, and loss of freedom, all because of his unwavering, uncompromising proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone, from Gentile peasants to Greek philosophers, to Jewish temple authorities, to Roman prison guards, to Roman governors. Finally, Paul forfeited his physical life. Several early church fathers attest to the fact that Paul was publicly beheaded in Rome during the reign of Nero for his faithful proclamation of Christ. Here in Galatians 1, Paul very deliberately makes it clear that after Christ laid hold of him, he did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. He didn't even consult with the original apostles who still maintained their home base in Jerusalem. Instead, he went to places that they weren't yet going, like Arabia and Damascus. There's been a lot of speculation about what was going on with Paul during those three years that he was in Arabia and Damascus. I won't go there because that's speculation. But the one thing that Paul explicitly says is that that time was not spent consulting with other people for a better understanding of the Gospel. That doesn't mean that he was hunkered down in a cave somewhere avoiding contact with people. In fact, the rest of the passage indicates that he was preaching the faith of Jesus Christ. By the way, can you imagine what it was like for the people in Damascus, especially the Christians in Damascus, the first time he showed up preaching Jesus Christ. If they had heard about what his last task was before that, (laughs) that would have been really something. In the last part of this passage in verses 18-24, to Paul explains that in the early years of his ministry, after his miraculous conversion, the believers in the region of Judea where Jerusalem was situated where the other apostles were, still didn't know Paul by sight. He had spent a grand total of 15 days in Jerusalem and had met only a handful of the saints there, including Peter and James. That visit happened fully three years after Jesus made himself known to Paul. And yet, by that time, Paul's reputation was already very well known among the Judean Christians. They had already heard over and over that he who once persecuted them was now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Finally, in verse 24, he makes a statement that we might at face value take as self-serving. He says, and they, the saints of Judea, were glorifying God because of me. But Paul wasn't being (laughs) self-serving in the least. He was simply pointing out that the radical transformation that God alone had wrought in Paul was being powerfully used by God to build up his church. The result of Paul's miraculous encounter with the resurrected Christ was that the man who was very likely the most militant enemy of Christ in his day became virtually overnight a sold-out advocate for Christ to the point of constantly risking and eventually losing his own life entirely for the sake of of furthering the gospel of Christ. Paul presents his own transformed life as compelling evidence that the gospel he proclaimed was the gospel of God and not the gospel of men. Beloved, does your life provide compelling evidence that Jesus Christ is the real deal and that the gospel that you proclaim is God's gospel Is your life a testimony to the transforming power of God and Jesus Christ? There's little doubt that most of us in this room owe our eternal destiny to radical transformation that God accomplished in the life of a man named Paul nearly 2,000 years ago. A miraculous transformation in one man that sparked a gospel fire that spread throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the Gentile communities that then became the Gentile communities of Europe. Is your life more like a fire extinguisher than a spreading flame? If it is, how does that get fixed? It gets fixed when you fix your eyes once again on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. There's a marathon in those verses and the way you win that marathon is to keep your eyes on the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mixed two passionate passages there. You'll forgive me. Now what does that mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? It means you go back to your first love and you stay there. It means you turn your affection and your attention back to the grace giver. It means you behold Him in His Word. It means you seek Him in earnest prayer. It means that you attach yourself to the people in whose lives He shines most brilliantly. And then out of love for the lover of your soul, it means that you do the things that honor Him and that advance His kingdom. It's not rocket science. It is one preeminent controlling relationship. The cure for self-absorbed, useless Christianity in all its forms is for us to go back to the grace giver and find our life in Him alone. Now, I'm going to suggest something that might sound a little crazy to you at first, but stick with me and I hope it will make sense. My own story of how God laid hold of me is very different than Paul's. And if you're a child of God, your story of how God laid hold of you is different than either Paul's or mine. But I believe that once you break down every believer's conversion story to its essential elements, what you end up with is Paul's conversion story in every case. In verse 6, Paul says that the Galatian believers to whom he was writing had been called by the grace of Christ. In verse 15, he says that he, Paul, was called the same way. By God's grace. In other words, every person who comes to Jesus Christ comes the same way. By God's grace. And there is no separating God's grace from God's sovereignty. Someone you know very well said that to me on Wednesday, and that was Bob. (laughs) Dead people have nothing to offer. It is not our quest to learn the truth about Jesus that brings us to Him. Paul says in Romans 3.11, there is no one who seeks after God the way God would define that. We may talk about our quest for God, but if there was any real seeking involved, it was God's work in us, not ours. It is not our longing for relationship with God that brings us to Christ. It is not our inspired reasoning that brings us to Christ. It is emphatically not our good deeds that bring us to Christ. All those do is condemn us. It is God's grace that brings us to Christ that we may be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. As we share our individual stories of how we came to faith, we may talk quite a lot about the people that God used to draw each of us to faith. or people who had the boldness to share the good news with us. We may talk about circumstances that God used to humble us, to make our hearts ready to receive the Gospel. And those are good things. It honors God when we talk about all the instruments that He puts to use to save men and women and children. But we need to be very quick to recognize and to point out the difference between the instruments through which God saves men and the one and only source of that salvation. Our gospel isn't about men saving men. It's about God saving men. When you take away all the non-determinative differences between how you were saved and how the brother or sister sitting next to you was saved, what you end up with is Paul's conversion story. The resurrected Christ giving life to a dead person, God in Christ single-handedly turning an enemy (laughs) into his child. Last Sunday, just before the message, we sang a contemporary song called Here I Am to Worship. The first line of that song goes like this. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. You opened my eyes and let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with God. Beauty that made this heart adore you. That's Paul's story. That's Luther's story that we saw last week. That's my story. And if you're among the redeemed of God, that's your story too. If God doesn't turn the lights on, they don't come on. And when He does turn them on, your eternal destiny is sealed. God doesn't try to save anybody. He saves to the uttermost. God's irresistible call of grace is the one and only thing that plucks us out of death and utter darkness, and plants us firmly and forever in the kingdom of his beloved Son. He does it all. How does this affect our assignment? What Paul tells us in this passage has huge implications for how we go about sharing the good news with lost people. This is God's gospel for men, not man's gospel for men. So we are to be bold in proclaiming it. It's not up for grabs. It's not for consideration. It is God's message to lost men. All of them. We are to be dogmatic. Get familiar with that word. And when it comes to the Gospel, embrace that word. We are to be dogmatic in proclaiming that Jesus is the one and only way of salvation for every person. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 But we are not to be pushy. We're not salesmen. We are certainly not deal closers. You know what we are? We're witnesses. Our task is to bear witness to the truth that God has graciously revealed to us and then both to demonstrate and to speak of the gracious transformation that God has brought about in us. Our task is to proclaim and to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's task is to use our witness corroborated by lives that match up with that witness to pluck other people out of the fire. I want to talk just a moment further about that adornment. You and I are just instruments. We're not the source. God's the source. It's His gospel. So we need to make sure that our words don't mess with His words. But we also need to make sure that our lives don't mess with his words. What if, after his miraculous conversion, Paul had just, had stopped persecuting Christians and then faded into the woodwork? <laughs> what if he had received Christ's gracious gift of forgiveness and eternal life, but declined Christ's commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire? You think there would have been anyone in Judea glorifying God because of Paul? What if Paul had been faithful in proclaiming the Gospel for a time and he had seen God start all these churches in Galatia through his work, but then had not had the courage to defend the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, when just about everyone else, including the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, were drifting toward a graceless Gospel? Well, What would have happened is that God would have raised up another instrument. Another man to speak for him. He always has. (laughs) But Paul would have been useless to God. Along with most of the known leaders of the early church at that point. God used Paul to straighten out the leaders of the church. We'll see that clearly in chapter 2. If you talk grace but organize your entire life around rules, what happens to your message in the eyes and ears of the beholder? That's what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 2. What do other people see us getting excited about? Do we muddy the waters of the message that we preach by living lives that are controlled more by the traditions and obsessions of men than they are by the word of God's amazing grace toward us in Christ. Is our zeal for our personal views on politics or economics more apparent to the people around us than our zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about our zeal for entertainment? Or our zeal for the latest wisdom on healthy dieting? Or our zeal for the network marketing product that we're pitching to supplement our family's income? I've known Christians who are a lot more willing to offend over a product that they were selling than they are over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, none of those things are evil in themselves. The question is, for what are you extremely zealous? A life that adorns the gospel is a life that is obsessed with exalting Jesus Christ. That's... I've said it before, that's our one legitimate obsession. Our Savior and our Master. One last point, and I saved the most important one for last. If God is the one and only source of the message, if He's the only source of Gospel understanding and the only source of Gospel transformation, you know what that makes us? Dependent. Utterly dependent. We're not the source of anything. And you know what absolute dependence does to the child of God, it drives us to our knees. It drives us to pray without ceasing. There are many, many things in this life that you and I can do without. Prayer is not one of them. If there are things about this church that you don't like, that you believe if they were done differently would make us more effective for Christ, what do you think would happen if you devoted at least as much time and emotional energy to praying about those things as you do to criticizing them, either in your thoughts or in your words? Are you praying for your neighbor or coworker or family member who doesn't know your Savior? Based on this passage that we looked at today, though both are necessary, the reality is that talking to God about that lost person is infinitely more important than talking to that lost person about God because you're not the one who's going to turn that person's heart. God is. Are you praying for the people and ministries of this local body? Your body? Including God's ministry to others through you? Are you praying for God to work in the lives of the international students that God is bringing into fellowship with people in this church through that ministry, the ISI ministry? Are you praying for God to work in the hearts of our children and youth and young adults who are going to be the future of this church and of other churches? Are you praying for me and for the other men at CBC who preach and teach the Word of God and for the men and women who teach our children? Are you praying for God's transforming work in your own heart? After praise, that should be your first petition every time you bow the knee to God, that God will make your heart fully His. We are a wonderfully dependent people because God is the one and only, He is the one and only one who opens blind eyes, who revives dead hearts, who transforms enemies into joyful servants. And beloved, being that dependent upon God is the best of all possible circumstances for us.